Good morning. We're going to continue here in our sermon series on the book of, in the books of John. Uh, this is actually the final sermon in John chapter 1, uh, 1 John rather. Uh, we'll be moving next week to 2 John and then the week after to 3 John. Uh, 2nd and 3rd John are the two shortest books of the Bible. Uh, They are sometimes referred to as postcard epistles because they could fit on the back of a postcard. They're kind of short. But I hope that you've found uh, our time here in the books and letters of John uh, to be good and instructional. Um, And so when we finish that up, we'll be then moving into, uh, believe it or not, Thanksgiving and then Advent. It's like right there. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 12 or 13. 1 John chapter 5. Uh, I do like to recap. So previously, what we learned two weeks ago, uh, last week we talked uh, about Reformation Sunday. We talked a little bit about Martin Luther and the Reformation. So it was actually the Sunday before that. Sort of the main point of that sermon to catch you up was that rightly understood and followed, God com- God's commandments brings believers great joy and freedom and not a sense of oppression. And this uh, came about studying that the idea of following a certain set of standards or a certain sets of rules uh, from Scripture actually gives us freedom, but it doesn't give us a sense of oppression. And some people can look at it and say, man, you don't do this, you don't do that, you must have... Uh, such a, a sad lifestyle, and the answer for the Christian is to say, no, look how, look how happy and joyous we are. Uh, uh, but the, the flip side of that is you actually have to be happy and joyous. Like, you don't, I, I don't like sad Christians, so don't be sad Christians. Be happy Christians. Be joyful Christians. Uh, Jesus saved your soul. Act like it, right? Anyway, here we go. Chapter 5. So, First John chapter 5, and we're starting here in verse 13. John says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so the title of today's sermon, really what I was almost going to title the entire sermon series, is this one phrase, that you may know. Uh, John's letters are entirely instructional to Christians. They're uh, for Christians to be applied to Christians about Christian behavior and living. If that sounds exclusive, it is This is nothing in the book of John is supposed to be applied to the world or to non-Christians. It's about holiness and Christian living and how you and I as Christians are supposed to behave in the world. And so he summarizes that in chapter 5 here by using this phrase, that you may know. I write these things to you that those who believe, believe, those who believe means Christians, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, let's do a little bit of schoolwork here. Uh, The word know means to be aware of through observation, inquiry, and information. And so the word know is not uh, a word that is used uh, for faith, for believing in something though you have no evidence of it. That's in another category. And so John says that I write these things that you may know you have eternal life, that you can have... Uh, through observation, inquiry, or information, you can be aware that you have eternal life. In the Greek, uh, it is used 
the exact same way, it means to know or to understand something. To know, or in other words, to have assurance of. And so for a little bit this morning, we're going to talk about the assurance of eternal life. And the reason we're going to talk about that is because if we're honest, belief and faith at some times can be really shaky. Like, let's be honest, I try, I, I try and, and be as honest as I can when I'm preaching. Sometimes faith can get a little rocky. Sometimes we don't have, like, like I'm a, uh, an A-type personality. When I think I know something, I just charge straight ahead. Like, no one can convince me of anything else. Like, that's my type of personality. If I could, uh, if I believed that there was no clouds in the sky, you could show me the clouds in the sky, and I would try to argue that I was still right. That's my personality. My wife knows this a lot, and I have to be careful using her in illustrations today because she's in here today. Um, so I can't actually use her as an illustration for anything. And so I never like to admit this, this, but sometimes belief can get shaky when you look at the things happening in the world, when there's an earthquake in Mexico, when there are hurricanes that uh, destroy entire communities, when uh, Puerto Rico even now is still without power, when there are shootings, mass shootings in this country on a daily basis, sometimes uh, as a Christian you want to just step back and go, God, why aren't you doing something about this? And belief and faith can get a little shaky. Uh, It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't even mean that you're a bad Christian. It just means that sometimes because of the way this world works, the relationship with the spiritual and the physical can sometimes not really seem to be there, and so we get a little shaky. But listen, you're in good company. Because most of the people in the Bibles, uh, most of the people in the Bible stories that we know, the rock stars of the Bible, had shaky faith at some time or another. Like, uh, I I try and get on this soapbox uh, a lot because some of these stories are three and a half thousand years. We sort of build up these biblical characters. We're like, yeah, Moses. Moses is such an awesome dude. Of course God chose him. Um, Moses was a murderer, uh, FYI. Like, he killed an Egyptian and then ran away into the desert. Rather than face the repercussions of what he did, rather than own up to it, he actually ran away into the desert and became a shepherd for a period of time of 20 years, to, or 40 years, rather. Uh, he became a shepherd for a long time uh, so that he didn't have to face the consequences of his, a- his actions. When he saw the burning bush, he went up the mountain uh, in Exodus chapter 3. He went up the mountain to the presence of God. God tried to convince him, hey, you're going to be my prophet. Look at all this amazing stuff that you're going to do through my name and my power. And Moses was like, no, uh-uh, not me. Go pick someone else. Go pick my brother. He can talk pretty. Like, it was literally the first recorded incidence of someone being like, someone else talks prettier than I do. Go, go get them. Like, Mo- that was Moses. Leader, of- this is the let my people go guy. Go pick someone else. David, who is referred to in the Bible as a man after God's own heart, who we elevate to this status of being like a near mythical, but he is the king over Israel. Uh, he slept with his general's wife and then sent that general into a battle that he knew he would lose, withdrew the army's support, so that general and all of the people in that general's battalion died. Like, we often focus on the husband because that's the key of the story, but that husband was also commanding a group probably of 100 to 1,000 people, and they all died as well, right? 
and he did it because he liked the way that a woman looked when she was bathing on a rooftop. This is David, the man after God's own heart. This is David, the man who went in the Psalms and said to God, your presence is so far from me. How can a man who's uh, a man after God's own heart be so far away from the presence of God? It's because his faith got a little shaky. You can track any of the people in Scripture. The pro- there were prophets who ran away from God. Uh, one of my fi- fi- uh, favorite is Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah gets prophesies against the nation that had uh, in, uh, attacked Israel and taken them off into captivity. Uh, he's prophesying. Uh, Dave, uh, sorry, Jeremiah gets thrown down a well. He gets stripped na- naked, he gets beaten, and he gets thrown down a cistern, uh, which is actually a toilet, not a well where you draw water, a place where you put human refuse. And he's thrown down there, uh, and he calls out to God. And he says to God, God, why have you seduced me? He uses the Hebrew word patah, which means to seduce. So he says to God, God, you promised me that I would be a prophet with power, that I would raise up nations, that I would destroy nations, that I would build your kingdom, and I am literally sitting at the bottom of a pile of human waste, naked and beaten. Why did you seduce me with promises of power? He says that to God, but not to another person, not to a king. He says that to the almighty maker of heaven and earth. And God then raised him up and used him to prophesy and destroy nations and then to raise up other nations. God fulfilled his promises. But his faith was a little shaky. How many of us could say the same? That if you and I were stripped naked, beaten, and thrown down the bottom of a toilet, at the bottom, we might start having some words with God. Right? Uh, too often we look at the biblical characters and we elevate them higher than mere humans. Every single one of them was flawed. Every single one of them was human. And that's why God used them. Like, not to put too fine a point on it, in the book of Numbers, God used a donkey. Right? If God can use a donkey, he can use you guys. That's all I'm saying. That you may know implies that it is possible for Christians, for you and for me, to have assurance of salvation. Because when that faith gets shaky, it doesn't mean that you lose your assurance of salvation. It means that you need to have a very frank, very real conversation with God. But listen, that's not sinful. It's only sinful when God comes back to you with an answer and you say, no, God, I'm going to ignore that answer. Crying out to God is expected. Ignoring God is when it gets dangerous. Do you understand the difference there? And so uh, John is writing here to a group of Christians that says, uh, hey, look, this is everything that's going on. This is what's happening. These are the people who are influencing your theology and your doctrine. You need to go away from these people. And it's okay if your faith gets a little shaky. It's okay if it gets a little rocky or a little bumpy at times. But the reality is, as long as you trust in God, you may know that you are saved. You may know that there is an eternal uh, place for you in God's presence. Second Peter first, uh, chapter 1, verse 10 says this, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. What he's saying here is if you were diligent in following what God tells you to do for your life, you will have eternal life. You can have assurance of eternal life. 
Now we have to get into a little bit of technicality here. Total assurance isn't the same as eternal security. Now, this gets a little bit complicated because you look at those two things and I've got no idea what he's talking about. Good, let me explain. Total assurance is you and I knowing that if we remain in God's will, you and I will gain eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen, you with me on that? Eternal security is the belief that it doesn't matter what you do in life, as long as you were a Christian at some point, you still get to go to heaven. And these two things are different. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that you can blaspheme against the name of the Lord, you can ignore God's commands, you can uh, uh, do whatever you want, and still expect the promise that you made as a 10-year-old child to carry over. See, a, a lot of Scripture says that faith is demonstrated by the way that you act, by following God's commands, by doing what God tells you to do. And it says over and over and over again, and over and over and over in this book, it'll say that if you don't follow God's commands, then you're not saved. It doesn't say you need to do works to be saved, but it says that if you don't do works, then maybe there's no evidence of that salvation. And so uh, assurance isn't the same as security, and I want to uh, tell a little bit of a story, if I will. Well, actually, I'm going to let Jesus tell the story. Uh, something that, that kind of bothers me. Maybe you know the story. It's the, the story of the three servants. If you have your Bibles, uh, I invite you to turn to the book of Matthew. Chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. It'll be on the screen, but again, I like you to be able to point and know that I'm not making it up. So Jesus told this story. And he said this, uh, and he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. Now, I am sure at one point or another, if you've spent more than six months in the church, you have heard this story. And at the very end, someone said and wrapped it up by saying, so make sure you're using your talents for the Lord. Make sure you're doing what you're supposed to do because you don't want to be like this third servant. Have you heard this story before? Have you heard it preached like that? So there's these, these three servants. Uh, the one who received five talents uh, went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. Also the one who had two talents traded and got two talents more. But he who received the one talent went and dug his ground and hid his master's money. Okay, so he, he, he's dug a hole. Now, this, is, this story is a little close to home for myself. Let me explain why. When I was a kid, uh, I was homeschooled, but we did these conferences. Uh, and one of the, th the things that we did in these conferences is there were acting uh, competitions, and we put on plays and dramatic dialogues and monologues and things like that. Uh, my family, being crazy, uh, decided we were going to do a play. And we used as the source material this story and guess who got to play the third servant? <laughs> Me. Now, it was beautiful, it was wonderful, we won awards. I'm not going to lie. We were fantastic. <laughs> but, mainly due to my own performance, I had a top hat, a bow tie, I was five foot nothing, I was very cute, all right? Uh, and I played this character, we named him Julian Potterton Brown, and we of course made him British and a snob. Completely unlike myself. Now. So this story rings a little close to home. But here's, whenever this story is told, here's what gets me. Is this guy 
this is an allegory, obviously. The master is God or Jesus, uh, and he's giving us things and talents to use. He's giving us instructions. Two people out of three follow them, and the third one doesn't. It always bugs me because the third guy had seen the presence of God. It's the same issue that I have with the Israelites in the opening books of the Bible, in the first five books of the Bible. Uh, after Exodus, they see what God does, like, right? They see the ten plagues of Egypt. They see literally rivers turn to blood, frogs going places, cattle dying. They see eternal darkness, raining hail. and th Then they see Pharaoh letting his people go. The scripture says that they plundered Egypt and the wealth of Egypt on their way out. And so they took cattle and livestock. They took gold and jewels. And God literally parted the Red Sea. They go through the Red Sea. There's a pillar of cloud by uh, day and a pillar of fire by night. They can see the presence of God. They build the tabernacle. The presence of God comes down. The Shekinah uh, glory of God comes down, rests on the encampment. They can see the presence of God. And then one chapter later, the Israelites are like, I'm going to go make a golden calf. And they go over here and they make a golden calf. It bugs the crap out of me because they're literally in the presence of God. Physically, you know how much harder it is for you and me who don't see the presence of God? For you and me who didn't see the physical incarnation of Christ on this earth that we have to believe by faith. And these guys got to see the physical presence of God and yet they still went astray. And this guy, this third guy, I'm sure he was a good servant up until this point. Like I am sure because I wrote his entire backstory uh, for myself, for my acting, because it helps. I am sure he was a good servant up until this point. He's always portrayed in this story as the idiot or the bad guy or maybe the one, you know, whatever, maybe a little slow. I don't think he was any of those things. I, I think he was simply a guy who didn't want to mess up. He didn't want to make a mistake. And so rather than being bold for Christ, he decided he was just going to play it safe and step back. He didn't lose any money. Like, this guy didn't go to Vegas and lose the pot and then come back like, sorry, there's nothing. Like, he, he got his one talent back. And so for this guy, in the conversation about total assurance versus eternal security, there was a point for this guy where he decided he wasn't going to trust in God. There was a, a point for this guy when he decided that his way was going to be better than God's. There was a point when he decided he was no longer going to do what his master commanded him to do. And that was the moment that he lost his total assurance. That was the moment. And I know it seems a little harsh. Again, this is an allegory. It was meant to tell a tale in a very short period of time. But in verse 26, this is what the master, who is Jesus and God, said this to the servant, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew what I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. What God is saying is he has the ability to make things grow uh, without us. He has the ability to make things happen not reliant or trusting in and of ourselves. Because he's God, right? Like, like 
so often we sort of think of God as this like secondary character, like we're doing church over here and God's over here and like we're, we're really good at this church thing and so, uh, but God's over here and it's like, yeah, but you're supposed to be outside the building helping people and doing this and doing this and doing this and we're like, no, 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 God, we just want to get this church thing right. Just stand there for a second and we'll get it right over here. Well, just wait for us, God. Don't, don't demand too much of us because you don't understand the pews aren't clean. So we've got to make sure that the, the pews are clean. Now, don't get me wrong. I like a clean church. You have no idea how many times I vacuumed the foyer this week. I got my steps every single day. So cleanliness is good, but it's not the point of church. The songs that we sing are great when I don't mess up the words and the congregation is singing something different from what is in the songbook. But that's not the point of church. The point of church is to bring glory to the name of God and to love people. That's it. What I said three weeks ago, love God, love others, that's it. If you want to summarize Christianity, what Christianity is supposed to be, what we are supposed to do, how it is supposed to look, it is loving God and loving others. Not loving the building that we're in, though we need to take care of it because that's part of stewardship, but that's another sermon for another time. But not loving the building, not loving the pews, not loving the tradition, not loving when to raise your hands, not loving when you have to say amen or play the timbrel or do this or do that or do whatever. The point of Christianity is loving God and loving others. And so this servant decided he was going off the rails. He wasn't going to trust in God, wasn't going to do what God told him to do. This third guy, poor kid, Julian Potterton Brown, the third So as a quick note, before I get to the rest of the sermon, this is just verse, verse one, we've got another eight verses to go, so strap in. <laughs> this third guy, it's not the point of the sermon, but are you the third guy? Has God asked you to do something? Has God asked you to, to, to step out in faith? Has God asked you to reap or to sow something rather that he's going to reap later on that you've said, no God, I don't think I have the time, I don't think I have the talent uh, is there something that you need to do in your life to get this done? That's not part of the sermon. That's just a thought. Because there is. There's stuff that we can do and do better. First John chapter 5, verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Now, he brings up this very interesting uh, concept uh, that some sin leads to death and some sin doesn't lead to death. Isn't that interesting? Because if you and I have talked about anything, it's that the wages of sin is death. And so what's John saying? We need just to dive in a little bit here and figure this out. Uh, what John is saying here is that eternal death and eternal life are both a future, definition, uh, future destination of eternity, but they're also a present state. Okay, You need to understand that, that your eternal life right now is a present state. It's not a future heyday, will happen, when you die, you get to go to heaven, and that's when you get eternal life. Eternal life actually starts the moment that you accept Christ as your Savior. That's when your eternal life starts, because it's supposed to transform your heart uh, you're supposed to 
confess your sins to Christ, accept that He is Lord, then the Holy Spirit comes into your life, into your heart, and transforms you from the inside out. And part of that transformation is that you are then living the eternal life that God has prepared for you in advance before the foundations of the world right? So your eternal life starts now. Likewise, if you're not a Christian, you are currently in a state of eternal death. That is to say, if you were to die right now, your fate would be sealed, right? We don't believe that at one time you get to just choose, like you get to die and then you get to choose. You have to make these decisions before you die. And so eternal life and eternal death are not just a future definition, they're, uh, destination, they're also a present state, and so when he's talking about some sins are forgivable and some sins are not, uh, or some lead, sins leading to death and some sins don't, this is what he's talking about. Sin for which forgiveness is possible both because uh, forgiveness is sought and God is willing to grant it. So when he says that some sins don't lead to death, this is what he's talking about. He's saying that just because you sinned, it doesn't mean that that alone is a death sentence. If you seek forgiveness, God is willing to forgive. Can you imagine if we brought that message out from the inside of this church out to the people whose impression of church is that we're judgmental, condemning, and horrible people? That we're hypocritical because they see the sin in our lives. If we get that message out there as part of the loving others, that sin is not a death sentence because Christ already died on the cross to pave the penalty for sin, and that God is willing to grant forgiveness of sins. That all you need to do is ask. Rather than slapping a person across the head with the Bible and saying, just believe it, it'll make sense in a couple years. Because it doesn't. Like, I'm not sure if you guys have ever read the, the, the John chapter 1. Like, the go to, like, when people are new Christians or people, we want to try and convert people, we say, oh, just read John, it'll make sense. No, it doesn't doesn't make sense. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. That does not make sense if you're not a Christian. You read that, and you're like, well, there's this some dude, his name is Word. Uh, apparently, Word was hanging out with God, but he also was God. So maybe there's a guy called Word, and he has a, like a, a personality disorder. He thinks he's two people. It doesn't make sense. Send them to the Gospel of Mark. It makes a lot more sense. It starts with his birth. Jesus was born. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The Word was in the beginning. Everything was made through the Word. Nothing was made by the Word that has been made. That ma Don't slap people over the head with the Bible. Say, hey, I know you've heard a lot about Christianity. I know you've heard a lot of wrong things about Christianity. Let me tell you what Christianity is about. We love God and we love others. And one of the ways we love God is by loving others. And there is nothing that you have done in your life that cannot be forgiven by God if you ask for forgiveness. That's it. It doesn't have to get complicated. It doesn't have to get judgmental. It doesn't have to get anything other than love God, love others, and God will grant forgiveness. Now, for every happy, happy, fun bit, there has to be a not-so-happy fun bit. So we're talking about, so those are, when, when he says that some sin do not lead to death, that's what he's talking about, but then he also says that some sin leads to death, so we do have to cover that. And this is what he says. So the sin that leads to death is sin that it's either unrepented or the kind or nature that John has warned about through this entire letter. So if you remember some of the things that he said about 
He's talking about false doctrine. This is what he's talking about. He's talking about people who pretend to be Christians or who maybe at one point were Christians who come into the church to lead the church astray and promote a doctrine other than the one that is found in the Bible. That's who he's talking about when he says, says that some sin lead to a permanent death. This is what he's talking to. Remember, he's addressing Christians here. This entire book is addressing believers. He started this section by saying believers, those who know. The things that he talked about in this book, firm rejection of the true doctrine of Christ, habitual disobedience to God's commandments, and a persistent lack of love for others. John has said in this book, if you do not love, you don't know God, and if you don't know God, you're not saved. How many Christians do not show love? Because if they don't show love, I'm not saying that. The Bible says that, that if you don't love, you're not saved. And there are too many Christians who don't love, who are walking around thinking that they own the joint, who strut their salvation, even though there is nothing for a Christian to be proud about in their own salvation. The Bible says that salvation comes from God. It's not through your own works so that no one can boast about their salvation, that we need to boast in the finished work of Christ and give glory to God. But I will say this until I run out of breath and I die. If you lack love for others, you are not saved. And I am really sick and tired of people who are not Christians loving people better than Christians love people. I'm sick of having to defend myself when I say I'm a Christian because they've met too many Christians who are bad at loving people, who are hypocritical Christians who rather hate people. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not really a fan of people myself. I don't like to be around them. Like, this is just me, my personality, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who don't love. Because as much as some of you, you can figure out which ones, frustrate me, I still love you. So this is what John's talking about. All of those things that he just mentioned are, a lack, are indications of a lack of saving faith. And the person who lacks the saving faith, who walks around like they're saved, the Bible says they're not going to be forgiven for that. And here's why. Because they lead people off the path of Christ. They lead people away from salvation. Jesus talked about these guys as being wolves uh, in sheep clothing. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said that. It's people who walk around, they know the lingo, they know the right words to say, they know when to raise their hands, when to say amen, uh, they know that you know we clap along on the chorus. Not the verses, chorus. Don't make that mistake. This is how John ends his book. He says, little children. That's his affectionate word for those who are still maturing in their faith. We talked about this. In this context, though, he's talking about everyone who's reading this book, which for today means us. He says this, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And that's how we're going to end today's sermon. Now, for John, who was writing this to the church, was surrounded by physical idolatry. This was back in the day when they had temples. They had the great temple of Artemis, where there was literally idols set up that people would come and worship. People were coming into the church and saying, don't worry, you can worship Jesus and go worship this goddess, it's fine. 
And so for John, this was a very practical application thing. Keep yourselves from idols. He says, don't mess with it. Don't, don't mess around with this stuff. Don't mess around with vague spirituality. He says, your soul will be in danger if you do. He says, little children, keep yourself from idols. In, in today's society, that the idols have changed. We don't have massive temples anymore. Well, we do. They're called football stadiums. <laughs> Kick off 105. I read an interesting article that said if, a, uh, if someone from the first century was brought forward in time and taken to a football game, they would assume that they were at a religious event where people were celebrating their God through the eating of food, through the religious painting of their bodies in significant colors, and through loud cheering and adoration of the people that they're focused on. It's not just football. Throw in any sports there. It's not just sports. Throw in food. Because we worship food in this country. We worship food in, my, in, in Australia, don't get me wrong. Like, but like when you can drive down a street and you can see a thousand different restaurants, and when we gorge ourselves when there are literally people who are starving on the streets in the same city that we live in, maybe we worship food. And when we go into our living rooms, every single t uh, chair is facing the TV. Think about it. The TV is the focal point. If you were to bring someone from the first century, they would say what's the, the priority for any household is where you focus your attention. You walk into a living room of any house Every single, TV, every single chair is facing a television. Maybe TV has become idols. Now again, I play video games. I spend a lot of time de-stressing and detoxing on video games. It's not what I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about that, but if those video games ever became more important than church, um, or if someone ever called me up, said, I need your help, and I said, not now, I just gotta beat this level, then it would become an idol. Because if Christ calls us to love and anything stops us from expressing that love, it's an idol. Amen? So as we end our time together today, I promised my wife this would be a short sermon and I lied, so please forgive me. We're going to end our time today. I just want you to reflect. Again, this is not a, there's nothing wrong with watching sports, enjoying sports. I am going to listen to the game this afternoon. But if I decided that uh, that game was more important than church, it's an idol. Food is great. Fellowship of saints coming together and sharing a meal together is great. But if that food became more important than God, it's an idol. Does that make sense? How, how, how we separate those things? Anything that becomes more important to God than God, keep yourself from idols. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for the time you've given us to come into your presence and to worship you through the singing of songs and the opening and understanding of your word. I pray, Lord God, that as each one of us goes from this place, that you give us safe traveling mercies, that you go with us uh, out into our communities, that out into our cliques of friends and family and co-workers, that you help us do everything here that John was instructing us through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we keep ourselves from idols. 
And Lord, we thank you that we may know that we have salvation in Jesus Christ and that we have assurance of that eternal life if we follow your commands that you lay out in Scripture. Lord, help us all to love deeply and to love better. We pray all these things in your son's precious name. In the name of Jesus, amen. I'd like to invite Heidi.